Welcome to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. You're listening to Diane Hullett, and my special guest today is Teresa Brown, RN. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I guess I'm trying to think where I first heard of your book, Healing. I think I heard of it on Facebook. Somebody may have like sent me a link or something and said, check out this amazing book. So Teresa is an author in multiple ways, but her most recent book is called Healing, When a Nurse Becomes a Patient. And it's a powerful title and it's a powerful book. Tell us a little bit about your experience that got you there. Yeah, well, <clears throat> also, thank you for that very nice description. Yeah, so I've been a nurse for over 10 years, worked oncology, inpatient, outpatient, and then home hospice. And then five years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And the first thing was, <laughs> I thought I knew all about having cancer, right? Because I'd taken care of very, very sick cancer patients. And I discovered I... I really knew almost nothing about having cancer because when it's your cancer, it's, it's terrifying. And so people know I had a, a very small, very slow growing tumor, the most common kind, you know, if, um, if, if you're going to get breast cancer, this is the kind you would prefer to have. Um, and I was still terrified I was going to die. Um, and, and nobody except for the ultrasound technician told me otherwise. So that space there between what I was afraid of and what I was not hearing, I kept experiencing over and over again and identified it as a, a an empathy gap, a compassion gap. And then I reflected on moments when I was a nurse, when uh, something went wrong or there was something we would call a glitch probably, right? Oh, there was a, there was a glitch, but it all worked out in the end. But when you're a patient, a glitch is not a glitch. <laughs> a glitch is a huge disappointment where I would find myself wondering what, what's going on here? Are these people even managing my care? Are they even concerned about my life or what's going to happen to me? And this complete loss of trust that happens. And so that's what motivated me to write the book. And, and that's why the book goes back and forth between my diagnosis, my treatment, and then me reflecting on nursing, because it, it's, it's really saying we're not caring for people the way we ought to and the way that we could and should, I would, right. I would say should. And I think you've nailed it. I think that's exactly why it's such a powerful reflection because it's, you really beautifully sit on both sides of that table and you, you are able to sort of understand what it's like from the nurse's point of view with a big caseload and a lot of people, and they're trying to manage a bunch of things and they're trying to move quickly. And, you know, of course they're trying to bring empathy and compassion to interactions, but they're also busy. And then the side of what's it like is that individual patient who's who's suffering and freaking out and not necessarily knowing what's going on. So I think that is the crux of why the book is so meaningful and hits such a core uh, experience that so many people have with the medical system and they don't know how to move within that. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, it was really, it was quite, startling to me to discover that. And the other thing I was very careful, I hope, what I tried to do in the book, I should say, was not blame individuals. I mean, there are certainly individuals who failed me. Um, and I say, I also realized that I failed people, but 
the the overarching point is that everyone in healthcare is now working in this system that's so much about making a profit and you know i and many other people have been saying this over and over and over again and it it doesn't lead to significant change so i'm sorry if i sound like a broken record but it it's an important message but that focus on profit puts so much pressure on everyone on techs, on housekeepers, on nurses, on physicians, everyone. And so the compassion kind of gets squeezed out of people because you're evaluated on what's your efficiency? What's the throughput? You know, how is your documentation? Um, you know, I say at one point, there's no, there's no billing code for empathy. Right. Right. Absolutely. And when you're the patient, I'm not even sure you always understand that that's what's behind the speed and the efficiency, or you understand it theoretically, but you're like, but wait, this is my body and I have questions. Right. Yes. Yes. And it's hard to really think that through. And I would say that's a strength that I really bring to the book because especially from working, I've worked in a hospital, I've worked in an outpatient clinic in a hospital, and I've worked in basically home care and hospice and so I've seen that mechanism in these three key environments. I've seen how it operates. I've seen how it gets into the nitty gritty of everything. So I tell a story about taking basically two hours of phone calls and text messages and emails to try to get a dying patient, a new fentanyl patch, a pain relief patch. Um, that is not unusual, although it should be. Um, but you're right. I think the average person doesn't understand just how complicated the system is and all the roadblocks there are to clinicians to just kind of doing what you want uh, for patients, you know, um, and that's uh, it's difficult. It's so difficult. I mean, I love it when I hear of like a medical story that's really positive where people feel like, you know, mom or dad or aunt or sister was really cared for. And, um, you know, maybe there was one grumpy nurse, but overall they felt like the system really had the person. And then mostly I hear stories about people who feel like they got really failed or really beaten up by the system, battered around in, in a way when you're already dealing with some terribly difficult prognosis or procedure or something that isn't simple to go through as a human being, and you're bucking up and going through it as best you can. And then there's all these barriers that happen. Well, you, one of your first books was called Shift. I don't know if you want to just say a tiny bit about Shift. I thought that was such an interesting book as well. Sure. Um, yeah, it's The Shift, One Nurse, 12 Hours, Four Patients' Lives. It's a, it's a nonfiction account of a day in the hospital with me as the nurse, the narrator. And uh, it is based on a real day. Um, where I had one patient who I thought was basically fine and really, really wasn't. And one patient I thought was the treatment for him was going to be a disaster. And that also turned out completely differently than I expected. So at the end of that day, I had this epiphany where I realized, you know, I, I only have 12 hours with these people. That's it. I can't control what happened before I got to the hospital. I can't control what happens after I leave which is, is really one big difference between nurses and doctors, but I have this 12 hours and 
so much can happen during that time. And that is my opportunity to make a difference. Wow. Well, I can't wait, wait to read that one because I, I think it just looks really interesting. What what do you think people like with a diagnosis like you had, what people what can people expect and what should people expect? I mean, I think they're two different questions, you know? That yeah, that's a great question. I mean, what people should expect is that first of all, their care will be timely. So they won't be initially told they have to wait two weeks or three weeks for their biopsy. You know, if someone thinks you have cancer, you should be able to get a biopsy that day, the next day, in a couple days at the most, your results should be timely. People should tell you about your prognosis. You know, no one sat down with me and said, look, we can treat this. We even use the word cure to talk about that. Um, I really felt like I was on an assembly line um, and just kind of moving along. Um, and so people can expect efficiency, honesty, um, directness, and also clear explanation of the treatments. And so for me, there was a question of, am I going to need chemotherapy or not? And that was just the way that was handled. There's no other word for it. It was just a mess. Um, and for me, it was actually just a no brainer almost from, because I'm a nurse and I worked in oncology. So I did a bunch of reading and, um, you know, it's, it's more complicated for other people, but it, it just was handled so carelessly. Um, and that's the kind of thing that is so hard. And so imagine if my diagnosis was much more serious, uh, much more threatening. I shouldn't say serious, but you know, a much more aggressive cancer, a cancer that's much more difficult to treat, where the treatment is a lot more involved. And I had this feeling of carelessness and people aren't telling me what's happening and what to expect from the side effects. And um, so now I've told you what you what should happen and what could happen is that none of that stuff actually happens and, and you feel lost. I mean, I called it DIY cancer care as in do it yourself. And then the question is, how are you going to handle that? Because I went into this understanding how complicated the system is, how busy everyone is. And the thing I need to be the compliant patient, right? I need the person be the person who goes along to get along. And at some point I just realized this is not working for me. It's really not okay. And I started to lose my temper to make demands on people. I mean, I was not abusive. I was appropriate. I wasn't right. yelling at people. But you started to kind of get your head yeah. up like, wait, yeah. 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 I mean, and I did some of that at the, at the start, but I started, that became the way I was going to handle things because otherwise everything just was a mess. I didn't get what was going on. Nobody was explaining things to me. And uh, people may not know this, but there are patients and family members, unfortunately, who get classified as difficult sure. and no one likes those people. And um, what it means is that those are people who complain. Um, and sure, if you're complaining because your meal was not at the exact temperature that you like, or you know the chair you have to sit in is uncomfortable, but I at one point realized oh, I, I am the difficult. <laughs> no, I'm being that person. I and yeah, and I felt I felt this I felt this 
deep embarrassment for a moment. And then I thought, well, I don't have any other choice. Right, right. Because um, nothing is happening unless I'm raising, not raising your voice literally, but like raising your voice metaphorically and pushing back and asking for things. Yes. So, yeah. right. So um, I I now encourage people, be the difficult patient, you know, be, be civil, be right. polite. Don't be rude. Don't be abusive. But yeah, if you don't understand, yeah. say, I don't understand. Please explain that again. You know, if you... Right feel like you cannot work with your physician and you can pick another one, do that. Don't even hesitate. Um, right, right. Pick someone where the personality can fit. I'm struck though, too, by how, you know, in a situation like that, you're exhausted, you're overwhelmed. There's so much to do. It's, it's, it's really almost an impossible task to take on, to be your own advocate. And I was just laughing in my mind. I was thinking of when my mother-in-law was having terrible, terrible back problems and she went into the hospital and was there for quite some time. And at some point my husband, understood so much about what was happening that when he went with her back, that when he met with one of the attending doctors in the morning, the doctor said, now, wait, are you, are you a doctor? <laughs> this was like, no, I'm just a super concerned son. But we always joked about it that he could say no, but I play one on TV, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Right. But I play he one in like, my real no, life. I just, yeah. <laughs> I to, like I had to learn everything there was to learn. And in fact, something that he pointed out made a difference in what they did for her care because they were going to, I don't know, forget the details of it, but suffice to say, I was so clear that because she had two young, involved, smart, organized whippersnapper advocates, she got better care. And without that component of people living in the same town and showing up every day and mm. talking to doctors, I think her trajectory would have been very different for this back surgery. So, I mean, how do you do that when you're exhausted? Maybe you're, you're living alone and you've got this new diagnosis. It's just quite overwhelming. Yeah. And, and you make a great point because we now accept that as the status quo. Like everyone says, you have to have an advocate instead of saying, why do you have to have an advocate? Yes. Yes. Um, you know, we're not asking the right questions. Um, yeah. You should not have to learn enough about back issues that the attending physician thinks you're a doctor, exactly. <laughs> you know, just like that exactly. is, that is like, a ridiculous yeah. standard. Um yeah. And it's interesting in, in healing, I quote an actual research survey where they asked patients, what do you think of as compassionate care? Um, and, and basically the definition was going above and beyond, which I have mixed feelings about because part of me feels like that's a very hard burden to put on staff who are already overworked and underappreciated in many instances underpaid. But on the other hand, is is that what people feel like it takes just to get the care because everyone's battling against the system that's really not there for patients? And so, you know, it it shouldn't the system should be above and beyond. Right. Like that's so well put. Yeah. You know, which means meeting us as people where we are because you're, I mean, even me, a nurse, I'd worked with oncologists. I, I knew the lingo. I even knew some of the doctors. It didn't, it didn't really get me much um, in terms of clear explanations, compassion, empathy, um, you know. 
Claire? I, I w- yeah, there I'm I was like everyone I'm, else feeling lost. Yeah. I'm struck by how much of your, your experience was really just craving clarity and communication. Like that meant so much to you. And jumping back to this bigger picture though, is what, of what you were talking about, you, um, you talk about this great book called Compassionomics. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And they say in that book, the aim of this book is not to change people's hearts, but rather to change people's minds by sharing the overwhelming scientific evidence about the effects of compassion on patient outcomes, patient safety, provider well-being, employee engagement, and organizational performance. I just I just thought that was so fascinating that there is such solid research that everybody can be happier and it's good for the bottom line. But we don't seem to be doing it. You're right. Everyone can be happier and it's good for the bottom line. And it's not that hard. And uh, that's the point I make when I talk about radiation oncology and healing. I had a great experience at radiation oncology and it was, it was really simple things. Like um, if I didn't use the computer kiosk to check in because I forgot, or the secretary would just say, oh, I can do it instead of sort of barking at me about it without looking up like that, you know, you you don't need a patient compassion initiative to do that. Um, I didn't want to sit in the waiting room because let's make a deal was always on before my (laughs) treatment. You're like, yes, I don't want to listen to. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I like, let's make a deal. But for some reason in that situation, it made me very, very nervous and anxious. Um, And I said, is there any way we could turn the TV off? And they said, well, we can't do that, but you can sit in the hallway and you know, five days a week for four weeks, a tech came out to the hallway and said, okay, Teresa, we're ready for you. There was no attitude about it. There was no kind of, oh, I was looking all over for you. Why do you need the special treatment? You know, it was just, we're here to help you. And, and that's even what the tech said to me. Nice. And so obviously the leadership in that clinic was focused on how can we make patients feel like human beings? How can we meet them where they are? And one of my favorite examples is they had me watch a video of what the radiation treatment was going to be like. And honestly, I remember nothing about that video, nothing. But what I do remember is that they showed it to me. You know, it wasn't even so much that it reassured me, although I'm sure it did at some level, but that they took the time to do that, to say, here's what's going to happen. Really simple. You know, it's handing me an iPad. Right. We're going to set you up in this space to watch this thing. It'll give you information. And you remember more of like the kindness in that gesture than the content of the video. Yes. Yeah. And in like, you know, I'm sure it was reassuring, but it's gotten mixed up in my mind with those takeoff before the airplane videos. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Cause I find I don't take in information very well from videos. Like even if I'm told to watch it, I do much better if it's a conversation with a person, but I understand that they've got hundreds of people. They're telling that same information to every day. So it's an effective way to communicate how do you have a follow-up conversation moment? How do you ask some questions? How do you make it more personal? I don't know. I don't know. These are such tricky things. And I, again, I think what's so interesting about your book and your experience is that it's really everyone's experience at some point, either themselves or their sister or their friend 
or their mom or their aunt, or if it's not breast cancer, name a bunch of different male connections, you know, because it's just really something that we all interface with is the medical world and how to do it in the best way possible. Yeah, that's, that's what it comes down to. Definitely. And, and there are people who, who wrote about healing or, and said, you know, when I had breast cancer, I had the best treatment and that's fabulous. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it, it struck me as odd that people sort of extrapolate that out to say, well, I'm sure everybody's getting that when they're obviously not. I mean, if you paid attention at all during COVID, it was obvious how overworked everyone was and everyone saying, you know, COVID just took a situation that was already very difficult and just made it so much worse. Um, So I think it's wonderful that some people get great care. Of course, I I think that's amazing. The, The salient point here, though, is that for so many people, it's not like that. Well, I'm struck too, Teresa, as we're talking about like the layers of it, right? So you've got like the individual person, their health history, their family trauma or drama Mm -hmm. or positiveness around health history things. So you've got, are they a sensitive person walking into this? Are they pretty resilient? Are they, what's, what's their package that they bring? Then you've got all those individuals that they interact with at like the front desk and the nurse and the medical assistant kind of level. And then you've got doctors and their expertise and what they bring to the package. And then you've got surgeons. And then, you know, you've got these multiple layers of interactions that may work really well for some individuals and may work really poorly for other individuals. And they may even have been similar interactions from the people, but it's such a mixture of those chemistries all coming together and how to sort of make our system work as a, as you said, like an assembly line to get these procedures done and yet to personalize them and really connect so that there's care. I was struck somewhere in your book, you said, you know, you, it's like you, you got it, you got it done, but part of you was lost in the process. Yes. And listening to you, I remembered one of um, the stories I tell in healing about a patient. This, uh, this guy was getting follow-up chemo. So he was going to be admitted for two or three days. They had him start at our outpatient clinic across the street and he was supposed to come over and that was supposed to expedite his treatment. But he was supposed to come having been started on IV fluids, which he wasn't. So I need to start him on IV fluids, which is not a big deal, except that I called down to get a pump and our supply office said, we don't have any pumps, which that's like a restaurant saying we're out of plates. Like it just doesn't happen. Um, And so I thought, okay, that's weird. You know, call back in 20 minutes. No, we're still out of pumps you know, time keeps passing. No, we don't have any pumps. And I was really busy with my other patients. You know, often you can, you can go to another floor and sort of look around and you'll find a pump somewhere that you can take. And I didn't have time to do that. And also I'll own it. I was annoyed. I was annoyed that they hadn't prepared him the way they were supposed to. Um, They hadn't said anything to me about it. And he kept coming to the door of his room and he would look at me and give me a really dirty look. And it was, the whole thing was very uncomfortable and hard. But as the nurse in that moment, I felt like I didn't create this problem. I can't fix it. Um, I'm really busy and he will get his chemo. It just won't start, you know, at 
10 in the morning. Maybe it'll be, I don't know, seven in the evening or, you know, it'll all happen. Then once I became a patient, I thought back to that moment and how he must have felt. He had been promised, you come in early, we'll get things started early, you'll leave early. None of that happened. You know, maybe he needed to leave on time on that third day or at a certain time because his daughter was getting married or his son was graduating from college. I mean, right? who knows? Or he just wanted to get out of the hospital because he hated being there. The point is, we had promised him something and we had not delivered. And, and there was no mechanism for addressing that, for acknowledging that, Um we're expediting that. And, and also that it kind of all came on me to make that happen, which is another big problem. Um, but um, I, once I became a patient, I, I really felt for him so much more and, and, and saying, you know, well, he got his chemo, we saved his life. It, it, yeah, that's great. I'm sure he's happy he's alive. Right, but, but there was this, like, there was this breakdown in the clarity. Right communication. And so in that moment or in that day, he was kind of lost. Right. And, and we could certainly do better. I mean, that's the thing. We have all these resources. We could do better. It's not that hard. Yeah. Well, and I, it's, so that's a great place to kind of say, shout out to the medical people and all that they hold and do. And there are so many doing a tremendous job. And then how do we keep, like, like you said, not to blame any individuals, but how do we keep moving in a system that can work better for all involved, I think is really the question. Well, what, what else, anything else you'd say that, that is helped, you know, here's a little nugget that would help people to know. Um, I would say just keep in mind that most people in healthcare did get into the field because they want, <clears throat> excuse me, they want to help people. There is that desire <laughs> buried perhaps deep inside them. And so politely registering your questions, I think, is is very important. Um, making clear statements. I don't understand. When is this going to happen? Why does this have to take so long? You know, being as clear and calm, which I'm not saying that's easy, but the more you can be that way, the more likely you are to get what you want from the system. But also, if you want to go up the chain of command and complain and say, I didn't get this and here's what happened, I approve of that. Um, but try to do it in a way that acknowledges what your provider was doing and that you, you know, you see the pressures on them. But at the same time, what you want and need also matters. Right. Um, it's hard to get that balance right. But the more people can say, you know, hey, this didn't happen and I, I needed this, you know, that puts pressure on the system to change and adapt. Yeah, yeah. We want the system to keep adapting, not individuals to have to keep maladapting. Yes, 
to yeah. write, get a get right, get a medical degree just so you can manage your mother-in-law's care. Or, or at least play a doctor on TV, right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, well, Teresa, thank you so much. I really, I think this is, I think your book is really interesting. And I think your experience is really, like I said, there's just a, um, universal is probably too broad of a statement to say it's a universal experience, but, but it's a very common experience to have, um, to either you yourself be the Im- impacted patient or to have somebody you love be impacted and how to navigate this with, with, um, some, some calm and some elegance, but not feeling like you're just rudderless stuck in this system. That's taking you places. You don't even want to go how to have some agency and some voice in a way that works with the system for you. So you you well can said. find out you can find out more about Teresa at teresa.rn.com. <clears throat> Did I say that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yes. Wonderful. And you can find out more about the work I do at bestlifebestdeath.com. Thanks so much for joining me, Teresa. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure.